We spent tonight talking about what's at stake in Ukraine right now and how Vladimir Putin can be stopped. He has a long history, you know, of launching small victorious wars to boost his standing at home. And maybe people forget about the vast wealth he and his close circle, his cronies, his oligarchs have stolen from their countrymen. This time, of course, it failed. The war has not been short. The economy is in a shambles. Um, and he's in trouble. How much trouble, we don't know. But instead of finding a way out, he's doubling down, demanding Ukraine make huge concessions to negotiate with him yet again. Should we? My next guest says, absolutely not. Joining me now is Matthew Buleg. He's a research fellow with the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House, a London, UK-based think tank. And he joins me now from London. Matthew, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. I guess, I mean, you've looked into this quite, uh, you, you wrote some stuff right before this began. Uh, you've written more since it happened. I think we're right in assuming that what Vladimir Putin was expecting was a short, quick war, and he's gotten something very different. Uh, how would you assess the first two weeks? Right. So I think you're right. It's, it's not going according to plan in as much as there was a real sort of plan A, plan B and plan C in terms of the tactical operational ambitions of this war. Um, the, the other thing we need to look into is how much information does Putin have concerning what's happening really in the battlefield? I mean, we, we can assume that he works with very limited rationality and his access to information is controlled. And I wouldn't want to be the guy breaking the news to him every day that things are actually not going as peachy as he thinks it, uh, they do. So that's also, you know, this this uh, this disconnect between the reality and then what they feed the political leadership. So what's happening is obviously things that we don't know, things that we can actually ascertain right now in terms of what seems to be a failed concept of operation or a bad way of doing um, an operational art, as the Russians call it. Um, the issue of motivation and will to fight from soldiers, a lot of mistakes made on the field, and probably the very wrong and false assumption going to war that the Russian planners had, that Ukraine would actually crumble, that Ukrainians would actually lay down their arms and welcome Russians with open arms because they'd been, you know, nazified and whatever, whatever the hell it means. So all of this is feeding a lot of uncertainty in what happened and where this is going. So to, to put it in, in sort of, uh, you know, slang terms, Russia believed its own hype about what was about to happen in, mili- in, in, in Ukraine, uh, one, one would assume. I think they believe their own lies, absolutely. And I, I think what they, what they assumed would happen did not because of, you know, once again, a failed concept of operation or the belief that they would be able to quickly establish air superiority, for instance, that they would initially destroy the military command and control of Ukrainian forces, which would completely blunt their ability to communicate, to survive, and that Russia would be able to contest the battlefield very quickly. Um, so all of this has been um, probably understood now in the Kremlin, which is why we have this sort of lull, this pause in the uh, in the tactical operational uh, side of things, which will probably lead to a second phase of operations in the hours or days to come. And I, I gather from just reading what you've been writing that this would be a calm before a Chechnya, Aleppo kind of storm is what was it what you're thinking that the tactic that you've used in the past when in these situations is something they may turn to again, which is simply to start destroying cities. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem when you have initial irritation that leads to frustration that they have not met their, their initial uh, their initial goals at war. What we see right now is sort of the rejoinder between two military movements. The first one is siege warfare against major urban centers with the use of mass concentrated fires. Basically, this means leading a terror campaign against populations to force them out of cities. And we've seen Russia instrumentalize humanitarian corridors. And then the second type of warfare that we're seeing is uh, movement warfare, less quick than we thought uh, Russia would be able to make advances in Ukrainian territory, but a form of movement where they are trying to seize certain parts of territory, moving in force through spearhead operations to uh, seize critical national infrastructure, control a bit of terrain, and then try to link up these different pockets, so the, the, these different veins of advances um, inside Ukrainian territory. Because I know that while we've spent a lot of time paying attention to the situation in Kharkiv, to the situation in Kiev with that convoy, in fact, in the south, in in, in Mariupol and around Kherson, Odessa, and then towards Moldova, that there has, in mm. fact, been, we shan't forget there has been some gains here by Russia. Absolutely. And, and, and well, there, ha- there has been some Russian gains since 2014, because... Right. Then again, Ukraine has been invaded uh, by Russia since 2014 in occupied Crimea and Donbass. But now what we see is basically the whole the whole Black Sea seaboard and the bulk of Russia's Ukraine border disappearing and, and being more controlled by Russian troops as we speak. Um, this, this is further to Russia's initial intention to move across these three broad strategic directions from Belarus, from the northeast and Donbass, and then south from Crimea. Um, and this is exactly what's happening right now. All these bubbles and pockets of advances are will or might be linked up at some point. So it's more a question of uh, will Russia be able to sustain that type of operation. Also, the seaboard and the Black Sea will increasingly become contested. And there are discussions now around will Odessa sort of be the next sort of major urban warfare target. Mathieu, from... from- an observer's point of view, what has surprised or impressed you most about the Ukrainian military's response to this invasion? To be honest, nothing, because in, in no way Ukraine would lay down their weapons and the Ukrainian forces would stop fighting. So this is not surprising. Um, it's it's actually extremely humbling to see you know President Zelensky uh, stand up to Putin with the hope that he will be you know he will become in a way Putin's grave digger. Um, so th- this is, you know, this is this is not surprising. This is exactly what should happen. This 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 false assumption by Russia that Ukrainians will not be able to defend themselves, that they would once again crumble and, and and capitulate. So this, you know, this is a surprise for the Kremlin. It should not have come to a surprise for us. It's a sort of three hundred scenario, right? The uh, Zack Snyder movie that a bunch of technically lesser advanced technologically competitors to Russia are able to hold the Russian, the whole big mighty Russian uh, army at risk of demise and quagmire in a terrain they're controlled in through an army there with extremely high motivation, with a whole country standing behind them, with swaths of volunteers, of civilians, of community-based organizations and and and, and, and NGOs ready to help for the war effort. So it, it's a sort of a whole of society approach to the conflict because the moment Ukraine stops fighting, the country disappears. 
So they, they you know, we, we can't be complacent with that as well in terms of our options. And this is where, you know, the surprise is in a way. For me, uh, looking at Russia's military capabilities and advanced military technology is that all the assumptions we had um, concerning their technology, all the assumptions we had about the way we think they would wage warfare, a lot of it needs to be put into consideration. A lot of it needs to be reassessed, maybe because they failed once again their entry into war, or maybe because there's something more to it, maybe because we've been fearing Russia for 20 years and fearing Putin for 20 years, but actually all that for what, you know? Well, there has been real, really no evidence of vast, uh, you know, Russian military superiority other than in areas where they sort of, while they're wandered in against weak in, in vacuums, like a, like a Georgia or Transnistria or a, in, in Moldova or in Eastern Ukraine, Crimea, or in areas like Syria, where really there was no, um, there was no battlefield testing. One would think we would have to reassess this, but what does that mean in the short term? Can Russia be defeated in Ukraine? I think in a way they are already defeated in their ability to push to, to, to push for their initial military objectives. And, and now I don't see how they can sustain it over the long term, militarily, economically, and, 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 and socially. Um, and I don't see how they can achieve, therefore, their political strategic objectives, because in as much as we know Russia is ready to use military force to achieve wider strategic objectives, I don't see how their situation on the battlefield right now will, will you know, in a way, allow them to dictate future terms of, of, the, 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 of Ukraine, of the security guarantees with NATO and so on, all the things that Putin has been talking about since December and put on a nice sheet of paper for us to, 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 um, to, to look at. So th this is more a question of, for me, face-saving opportunities because Putin will have to, in a way, transform this quagmire into a form of victory. Right in terms of success, because he can't go back to the Kremlin and he can't go back to the Russians saying, "Well, we actually lost, and there's nothing we can do about it." So he needs to present this into a form of um, of victory, and they probably have a theory of victory of what success looks like, and this is very adaptable. And second comes the face saving mo the um, sorry the off ramp moments. All these things we've been discussing for the past few days on. Should we actually offer Putin some off-ramps, right? A sort of exit strategy for him to um, accommodate the a diplomatic way through that would be beneficial both to Russia and to uh, to Ukraine. I would argue that we can't offer off-ramps to the Kremlin. This is a fallacy because as far as I'm concerned, the Russian leadership is uh, in a situation where they are war criminals that need to be uh, judged as such and should not be offered any off-ramps. But this isn't a wider question of deterrence and accepting the cost of pushing back against the Kremlin. I'm speaking with Mathieu Bouleg, research fellow with the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House, a think tank in London. Right after this, we'll talk about again a bit more about those potential off-ramps and whether Ukraine are in any situation or in any position to want to even offer Vladimir Putin an off-ramp right now. And if there is no negotiated solution, what next? That's coming up. I'm back with Mathieu Bouleg, a research fellow with the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. That's a think tank in London. We've been discussing the war so far in Ukraine, certainly Russia's inability to achieve its early aims of a quick victory and change of regime in that country. It's uh, changing of tactics at this point, and essentially what could lie ahead? Should Vladimir Putin be offered off-ramps, uh, a way to escape the situation in a face-saving way? 
Uh, Matsu, many of the people I speak to think this is, we have 44 million or fewer now, but an entire nation, Ukraine, standing up for themselves, standing up for democracy, essentially. Vladimir Putin has been backed into a corner. He's clearly made a terrible mistake, um, at least in the short term. And this would be an opportunity to finally uh, put to bed a Russian threat that has existed either realistically or existentially for 20 years now. Is that even feasible? Oh, that's a good question. I, I would caveat, you know, our ability to, to go into regime change and as much as we, you know, tw- 20 or 30 years of, of uh, democracy promotion theory has basically failed at accomplishing anything. I mean, if you look at the track record, uh, yeah. especially the US track record at democracy promotion, it's not looking great. But I think what, what, we've, what we've agreed sort of maybe subconsciously in, in amongst democratic nations, because this is beyond just a Western sort of Russia or NATO Russia thing. It really is democratic nations standing for the rules-based order against a country and a leadership that believe they can dictate rules by force and that might is right. Um, so I think what, what we've agreed to in a way is that it's not just about persuasion through deterrence, right? That we try to punish you because you've done something bad. Um, we've moved up a notch and this looks more like coercion. It's a strategy of compellence. If you look at Cold War theory, now we're trying to not, not persuade, but really constrain and coerce um, our, in a way, our enemy because the Kremlin leadership has become an enemy um, to to change their behavior. The problem with this kind of thinking is that we also have to accept the fact that we need to uh, persuade and coerce the Russian population themselves. Russian citizens who have asked nothing about this war, who are equally taken hostage by the Kremlin and by 20 years of Putinism, that have been brainwashed into believing that the world they live in is one that wants to destroy Russia and Russia needs to be understood as great again because they would believe they've always been great. And we need to accept that we, we could antagonize the whole of the Russian population would think otherwise. So it, it is now up to us through economic pain, through economic sanctions and so on, and the increasing level of it, that Russians need to uh, put, take their destiny into their hands. So this, you know, a revolution in Russia is not something that will happen overnight. And this is something that could brew for years, decades. Um, and it's not because Putin is gone from power that things will actually get better. Because after Putin, there will be probably Putinism as a system that will survive. When we look at the short term, then, if we think this may drag on for a considerable period of time, how long can the Ukrainian military hold out against what is still a bigger force? And what do the allies need to do to ensure that A, Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian military can hold out, and B, that the entire country doesn't simply become another Iraq, for instance? Right. So I think, yeah, you, you, you're touching upon something that's very important is the sustainability of the war operation. So the high intensity war operations. And that, that works equally for Russia. And we've, we've touched upon it in the first part. But in, in as much as Ukraine will continue to fight because they are highly motivated and, and cannot, uh, cannot stop uh, at this stage. Um, it's a question of, so it's, it's sort of a compound, uh, compound question. As military operations will continue, the first logic is that there will be a new sort of geography of Ukraine, a military geography of Ukraine, where movement warfare will be replaced by a form of static or non-kinetic warfare, maybe through trenches, maybe through a sort of um, no man's land between the opposing forces, 
where Russia will have sort of pushed to a maximalist extent inside Ukrainian territory. And Ukrainian forces will have sort of pushed back and counterattacked to stop the offensives. And then the Russians will stop, Ukrainians will stop, and this will bring in a new geography. So they will hold out in a way, and they will position themselves in a more non, you know, static, non-kinetic warfare. The second element is the ability of the Ukrainian armed forces to continue doing good military logistics. Because this war will drag on, this will become a war of attrition, it will depend on the ability of the forces, reservists, territorial defense units, and everybody implicated in the conflict to, um, to, to continue good military logistics, to make sure that what is needed is brought at the right place, at the right time, to the right people, um, depending on where they are on the battlefield, on the front line, on the second, third line, or you name it. So good military logistics and resupplies. And then the third layer, which is directly linked to the second one, is us in the democratic nations. The military assistance that we are bringing to Ukraine needs to continue. It needs to be increased. It needs to be tremendously increased, I would argue, so that we can actually help Ukraine help itself in pushing back against, uh, against Russia. What we're seeing today, um, the bombing of a maternity ward in Mariupol, uh, the continued shelling of civilian areas. Uh, you've suggested that we shouldn't extend an off-ramp to Vladimir Putin. Uh, I, I guess at this point, there is nothing that Russia will not do in Ukraine. And I'm wondering about the threat of the, what we talk about, about pushing Putin into a corner. Do you think there is a threat here of, of even further escalation in the region? I, I think there definitely is, but... Now that you accept the cost in a way of coercion, we won't know if there's a risk until we get there. And we won't know if there is a pushback from the Kremlin until we start pushing back and we start applying some pressure of our own. That's that's the whole problem of deterrence in a way, that we, we have been so fearful of Russian capabilities for the past you know decade, at least, We've been so confused about the messaging they're sending in terms of information warfare, in terms of their their advanced military capabilities, that it has led to self-deterrence, also because Russia is able to use the nuclear threshold at will. So this has been leading us into a mental space where we self-deter, we limit our own options because we fear of the repercussions. I would argue it's, it's, it's time we started owning that narrative back. Mathieu Bouleg, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.